Writing in the Irish Worker of the 14th of March 1914, James Connolly described the proposal to partition the island as the betrayal of the national democracy of industrial Ulster, that it would mean a carnival of reaction both north and south, that it would set back the wheels of progress, would destroy the oncoming unity of the Irish labour movement and paralyse all advanced movements while it endured. This year marks 100 years since the acceptance of the treaty and the beginning of the war to overthrow the Irish Republic, two actions which sealed partition on this island for the past century, leading to a century of reaction. Over the next few months, the Pat O'Donnell Socialist Republican Forum will conduct a series of meetings examining and exploring the events of that century, its impact on the Irish people and how we believe that we can reverse the impact of that century of reaction and deliver a more progressive Ireland beneficial to all its people. To begin the series, we are delighted to have the eminent historian Fergal McCluskey deliver a lecture on the origins of the treaty, the negotiations around the treaty and its immediate impact. Fergal McCluskey. So the, the background clearly to the, the, the talks begin quite quickly after the 11th of July, ceasefire between Davalar and Lloyd George and then resume again in October when the plenipotentiaries or the Dáil delegation, it's quite unclear whether or not they have full powers, particularly when they signed at about half two in the morning on the 6th of December. Talks between the, the Irish delegation and the, the British delegation uh, the basis of Britain's agreement to the ceasefire is that Britain couldn't uh, defeat what had essentially been a national, a popular national liberation struggle through coercion. In the January and July 1920 urban and then uh, rural local government elections, in the rural elections, 80% of the electorate vote for either Sinn Féin the Irish Labour Party, or in places like Cork, there's a joint Sinn Féin Irish Transport and General Workers Union uh, ticket. So 80% of the rural electorate and over 70% overall of both urban and rural electors in 1920 vote for parties which expressly stand by the Republic. Now, this is a phenomenal uh, electorate mandate, which only confirms, really, the December 1918 Westminster mandate, which some historians actually quibble over in terms of percentages, there can be no equivocation or doubt that the vast majority of Irish people in 1920 had voted for a republic. The British response to this was to essentially unconditionally support a pogrom in the six counties which uh, was engineered by the Ulster Union's leadership and then to retrospectively sanction this pogrom to the creation of the Ulster Special Constabulary, which is, uh, had been in the planning from March 1920 right up to September and is then introduced in November 1920 where a great uh, amount of the pogromists are recruited on either a full-time or part-time basis as AMB specials and the UVF as a whole is essentially transferred into a state paramilitary force. So the that, that's the northern response to the democratic mandate for a republic. The southern response is a particularly brutal escalation in the conflict which by 1921 becomes a military conflict, not what the police 
had previously claimed some sort of, you know, police situation or explosion of gangsterism and crime, an argument that would subsequently use in the 1970s. What happens in, in, in Ireland in 1921 is that martial law is declared and the British army are used. And in the spring of 1921, the uh, commander of British forces in Ireland, General McCready, gives his assessment of how the policy of coercion or reprisal is going. And he says that the British government or the British state has two options, all in or all out. He says the British army cannot maintain its position and that it will either have to completely coerce and suppress 70% of the Irish population or it needs to get out. Now, because of the opprobrium and the uh, distaste for uh, actions like the burning of Cork and Bloody Sunday, etc., uh, within international opinion, and because of the fact that the British government, despite the limitations of British democracy in the period, had to rely on its own electorate, it became quite clear that a country which claimed to have went to war for the freedom of small nations or to, and had implemented the policy of self-determination across much of the successor states of Central and Eastern Europe would probably have to come to terms with this Republican insurgency rather than completely repress it. It wouldn't have got away with it internationally and it wouldn't have got away with it domestically, particularly considering the fact that there was an emergent trade union movement in Britain that the Labour Party was rapidly emerging as the main opposition uh, to the Conservative Party, the Liberals being fragmented by the Lloyd George split since 1916, and that the Labour Party's position, although rather lukewarm and watery in terms of the Republic, was for Irish self-determination to be granted within the Empire. So the British government essentially come to the conclusion that having tried to destroy the national liberation struggle for over a year through quite brutal repression, that it would be far better to hedge its bets and attempt to negotiate with these apparent criminals. And these apparent criminals then become the uh, international representatives of the Irish people just overnight on the 11th of July, 1921. So that, that's the background to the, 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 uh, the talks. The talks themselves hinge then really on two key issues. One is the issue of partition, and the other is the issue of empire versus republic. There's, there's clearly a democratic mandate for a republic in Ireland. Right? The British government have already created six county partition. They've passed the Government of Ireland Act in December 1920. They've opened the Parliament of Northern Ireland uh, in Belfast in June 1921. The King's speech is carefully choreographed to give the signal that the British are prepared to come to terms or some sort of terms with the Sinn Féin movement. Previous attempts have been made, particularly through the agencies of Archbishop Clune. At the turn of the year, these have been unsuccessful. It's really what's, what's rather erroneously called the Peace Faction in Dublin Castle, uh, a, a, a sort of a cohort of highly imperialistic civil servants uh, led by people like Andy Cope, who engineer this talks process, this peace process, we couldn't almost call it. Now, what's, what's the basis of this? The basis of this is, is, in essence, that the British government want to maintain partition and want to keep Ireland within the British Empire. The Sinn Féin position is that Ireland should have a unified republic and self-determination, i.e. separation from the British Empire. Now, it's quite clear that within the Sinn Féin movement itself, there are divisions. There are divisions between people who haven't been Republican for about 20 years, people like Arthur Griffith, who from 1903 and the resurrection of Hungary has been arguing for a dual monarchy. Griffith, who's basically, if you want, the ideological representative of the nationalist petty bourgeoisie 
in the Sinn Féin movement. The Sinn Féin movement is a coalition, really. Griffith had made moves towards the Heliite faction before the 1916 Rising, and that faction within Sinn Féin, this sort of conglomeration of uh, nationalist, petty bourgeois, uh, Sinn Féiners, and very well-off and uh, quite socially and politically conservative former Heliites, followers of Tim Healy, people like Kevin O'Higgins and Theron, someone like Kevin O'Shields, they are a faction and they will become the dominant faction within the, the, the counter-revolutionary government. You know, If you want to try and understand what happens because of the treaty, you can sort of hark back to Lenin's famous quote about the 1916 rise, and he says that these people who uh, you know, complain that this is not a social revolution wouldn't know a social revolution if it hit them in the face. Well, the, the, the civil war, the acceptance of the treaty in the civil war, is a social counter-revolution. And essentially what it is, is it's the rump of the old Irish Parliamentary Party and the landed Catholic commercial and landed class and the Catholic Church reorientating itself with the most conservative elements within the previous Sinn Féin coalition. This is facilitated by Michael Collins. We'll talk a wee bit about this in a minute. But we need to get into some uh, quick detail then about these separate positions. Both the two primary uh, forces within each of these two governments, we call it the, the Dáil government and the British government, Lloyd George and De Valera, have strikingly similar analysis. De Valera essentially accepts that there's going to be compromise short of a republic. And he comes up with the idea of an external association. In fact, he claimed that he came up with it one day when he was tying his shoelaces. And he, that essentially is uh, in, in line with his own uh, moth mathematical background, he does a little diagram uh, about it, is that Ireland will be a republic internally, but it will be externally associated with the British Empire. This was his compromise. Now, this compromise was to be premised on the essential unity of Ireland. This was to be sort of the, the, the basis for the Sinn Féin negotiating position. Now, this is this finds classical or rather funny formulation in the talks between Lloyd George and De Valera in July 1921. When Lloyd George says, look, De Valera, Northern Ireland already exists. Partition is a reality and we are offering you dominion status. That is to say, a level of independence for 26 counties equivalent to the white dominions. You will become a white dominion. These Irish people who we, not too long ago didn't really consider to be white. So the De Valera returns and says, well, that's fine. He says, I will take a 26 county republic or I take dominion status for 32 counties. And this uh, rather flummoxes Lloyd George, and he, in retrospect, he says that negotiating with De Valera was trying to was like trying to pick up mercury with a fork. And De Valera, uh, when he heard about this, says, "Why didn't he try and use a spoon?" So the the, the whole point here is that the Sinn Féin delegation that De Valera selected is sent to London on the premise that they would compromise on the Republic in order to secure essential unity. But they realise that the British government probably won't grant them the Republic, okay? But that if the talks are to break down, the talks must break down on the issue of Ulster and the illegitimate creation of partition, rather than the talks breaking down in terms of the question of empire. Because De Valera intrinsically understood that the British government would be able to recommence coercion with its own popular opinion or its own public opinion on the basis of empire, but would never have been able to recommence its campaign in terms of Partition. Lloyd George says exactly the same thing before the treaty talks in Inverness, uh, one of the few holidays he went on, 
with his wife instead of a secretary, uh, whenever he says that men would be prepared today for empire and throne, I don't know anyone who would be prepared today for Fremont and throne. So the, 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 the crux of the talks then is, is this, the polarity and the tension between partition and empire versus republic. And you have to understand that the talks process then, the treaty negotiations, as the very skillful manipulation of the Irish delegation by Lloyd George to alienate or to sideline the issue of partition and to focus the talks in on the question of imperialism. Now, how, how does he achieve this? He achieves this because he's facilitated by the people that uh, de Valera chooses. De Valera has been accused of cowardice. He's been accused of, you know, looking to be able to hedge his pets, etc., etc. My reading of the situation would be that de Valera was trying to keep this coalition, this Sinn Féin coalition of very disparate groups together through staying in Dublin, keeping people like Stack and Brewer, who were doctrinaire Republicans, on board, and then having the option, knowing rightly that the delegation were going to come under enormous pressure, having the option then to perhaps use his final say and the Dáil cabinet and then Dáil government's final say as a means to extract further concessions. Now, we, famously, this doesn't happen. But what Devilleur does is he sends Arthur Griffith over, and I've already discussed, Griffith is a particularly poor uh, representative of the Republic because he doesn't believe in the Republic. In fact, his position is probably closer to what the British are offering in terms of dominion status. He also is, and be quite obvious about this, quite a weak personality. Okay, he'd spent his, he'd spent, he ran his government offices in the Dáil from a snug in the Dublin pub. He turns up to the treaty negotiations, and uh, Erskine Childers, undoubtedly the most competent and, and the best uh, member of the Irish delegation, the, the, the delegation secretary, says he turned up every morning muzzy with whiskey. Now Lloyd George quite quickly understands that in order to extract concessions, he has to stop dealing in plenaries, that's mean in the two negotiating teams together, and he has to focus in on individuals. He identifies Collins and Griffith as the two main individuals. He then goes to work on Griffith. The way that he does this is he essentially convinces Griffith that he's on his side. He says that he is the member of a, a coalition government and that if he cannot find peace for Ireland, then his allies in the Tory party will elect that renowned reactionary Bonner Law and Ireland will be coerced. And he actually convinces Arthur Griffith of his bona fides, which is quite a feat considering Roy George's reputation. And he inveigles a concession out of, out of Griffith in terms of partition. He says he will try every means to convince James Craig to secure essential unity. And we have to realise this as well, that the Sinn Féin delegation had put forward proposals that Craig would keep his parliament in the six counties, but that it would be under the authority of Dublin, not under the authority of London. Right? Now, Lloyd George tells lies about this. In fact, Worthington Evans, an arch-Tory and reactionary who is also a member of the British delegation, transfers security powers unilaterally through the agencies of Henry Wilson to uh, Richard Dawson Bates and the Northern Administration, while Lloyd George is talking nonsense about trying to convince Craig to come into uh, a united Ireland. So this is all blather, if you like, but it actually produces a positive response from Martha Griffith because what Lloyd George says is that if I fail in these efforts at essential unity, would you accept the compromise of a boundary commission, which will leave the six-county territory that badly reduced that it would be forced to come into the south? 
So uh, Griffith, in the private correspondence from Davalera, says that Lloyd George assures him that they will receive for money and Throne, Derry City, South Armagh, Newry, etc., etc. On the 12th of November, Griffith gives a verbal undertaking that he will not release the details and he will not obstruct Lloyd George, who, who is facing a situation. Remember, the Ulster Unionist Party are also members of the Conservative Party. Lloyd George is the Liberal Prime Minister for a majority Conservative government, and the Conservative Conference is taking place in Liverpool, that hotbed of Orangeism and Irish nationalism in the period. And Lloyd George wants to try and push acceptance of the talks through the Tory conference, which he does quite easily. But on the 12th, Griffith says that he will not stand in the way of an agreement on the question of Ulster if a boundary commission is instituted. And on the 13th, Lloyd George is Welsh-speaking secretary and he converses in Welsh before the Sinn Féin and the British delegation so that people don't know what they're talking about. Tom Jones writes a memorandum and Griffith signs it. So Griffith has already destroyed the Sinn Féin negotiating position in November. Right? This memorandum is not mentioned again until the 5th of December, late on the 5th of December, when Griffith, who having returned from Dublin, <clears throat> where there's a very heated discussion in the cabinet and being sent to go over and change the oath of allegiance again, this key issue of empire and the the Iron's uh, relationship with the empire and the, the question of Ulster is told go over and face the consequences, war or no war, and any agreement that you sign has to be referred or referred back to the cabinet in Dublin before it's signed. Okay, now in essence, what uh, Lloyd George does is having uh, secured Griffith's private acceptance of the Boundary Commission when Griffith attempts to use Ulster as the basis for any breakdown in talks as the sort of the, the trump card in the Sinn Féin negotiating position Lloyd George rather theoprically pulls this memorandum out and says Arthur Griffith has given me a personal undertaking that he will not stand in the way of a negotiated settlement over the question of Ulster is he going to be a man of his word and quite Astoundingly, the head of the Irish delegation puts his own personal position and his own personal decision above that of the entire delegation and the, 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 the elected representatives of the Irish people. And he says, if no one else signs it, I, out of a matter of personal honour, shall sign this treaty. And then essentially what happens over the ensuing period is that the, the delegation fall like dominoes. Michael Collins signs the treaty. He allegedly says he signed his own death warrant. And the treaty is signed at half past two on uh, the 6th of December, 1922, without reference back to the Dáil cabinet. So in essence, what has been agreed within the treaty is this. A boundary commission, uh, Article 12, will revise the boundary in line with the wishes of the inhabitants and then the British, as Perfidious Alban will do, insert a clause in line with uh, economic and geographical conditions. Right? Now, this both sides of the future treaty debate, both the pro and anti-treaty factions believe that this will leave the North redundant, that the North will lose so much territory that essentially partition will you know, evaporate. <laughs> so in actuality, and th this is what Lloyd George really thinks, that, that while you know, poor Michael Collins is, is pulling his hair out and considering that he signed his death warrant, the following morning, the Tories and Lloyd George have a celebratory breakfast in Downing Street. And Lloyd George tells him that Craig will probably gain more than he loses from the Boundary Commission. So to whom was Lloyd George telling the truth? Yes. We, we, in the present day, we probably realise that Boris Johnson's you know, elastic concept of the truth and his adherence to three negotiations and signatures, this is not an outlier. This is actually 
standard British uh, <laughs> negotiating policy. The problem for Britain now, obviously, is, is that they don't have the biggest armies in the world and the largest navy in the world to back up. There's chicanery. But anyway, so the, the Sinn Féin delegation has been duped on the question of partition. What are the details then of empire? Well, essentially, Ireland accepts the king as the head of state. Ireland accepts an oath. It accepts... Uh, a Lord Lieutenant, the British representative in Ireland. It gives the British security through the treaty ports. It agrees to pay its imperial debt. And what it gets in return is uh, dominion status and the right to have its own army, which has only been conceded because the British secretly have conceded the same condition to Craig. I.e., the Irish fail miserably in their objectives in the treaty negotiations. In fact, Tom Jones, Roy George's secretary, says we have achieved everything that we offered in July. And the basis for this, in essence, is falsehood on the, the treaty and the fact that Lloyd George was able to manipulate the Irish delegation who broke, broke under the pressure. Now, what are the ramifications for this? The ramifications for this are civil war. Because <clears throat> the choice had been, and we have to be very blunt about this, the choice had been in 1821, there was probably going to be a civil war in Ireland, but it was likely that the civil war was going to be between the 39,000 arms Ulster Swisher Constabulary and the National Liberation Movement. By 1922, there's a civil war, but it's actually factions of the National Liberation Movement fighting a proxy war for the British Empire. Now, this doesn't become immediately apparent, and key to this is not Arthur Griffith. In fact, John Dillon, the, 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 the head of, of the rump of constitutional nationalist right, quite early on in 1922, that Griffith wouldn't last a fortnight without Michael Collins. And Michael Collins is central then to the civil war and the consolidation of the counter-revolutionary government. Now, you might say that Collins actually is ignorant of the implications of his own position, right? The British don't have a very high opinion of him in terms of, of a negotiator or of an intellectual force, but Collins appeared to have a very high opinion of himself. And one of the key things about Collins, and if you look at his conduct before his, his death early on in the Civil War in August 1922, Griffith dies at the same time of a cerebral hemorrhage, probably brought on by too, too many whiskies in 10 Downing Street. But the, the, the key issue is that Collins believes that through his machinations and through the force of his will, probably, that he can actually impact or steer the course of the large structural forces and the, the you know the the incredible weight of pressure that is being brought to bear by the world's largest imperial power. He thinks, thinks, I am quite sure of this. He thinks that he can use the agencies of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and of the Secret Republican Network to, to further his final objective. This is a disastrous hubris which actually leads to the defeat and the obliteration of any chance of achieving those Republican objectives within the lifetime of anybody involved in the all. And, and, and there are several ways that he does this. First of all, he's key to the acceptance of the treaty within Sinn Féin. Right? He uses the Irish Republican Brotherhood he, in order to get enough votes. Now, obviously, the cabinet votes four to three for the treaty, the, the, the casting vote being William Cosgrave, who, who, who Collins calls that bloody little altar boy, but who will become uh, very significant later on. 
but he uses his he uses his agents he uses the Irish Republican Brotherhood to convince Republican members of the Dáil to back the treaty. Now he he does this using four planks, and I, I try and get through these uh, quickly enough because I I know we, we have limited time. The first plank is that he, he famously calls it the freedom to achieve freedom. So this is not freedom as we would have liked it, but this is the freedom to achieve freedom. Right? He, he's had in this uh, venture by Debeler's document number two, but we don't have time to go into that. Right? But he then argues that he will produce a republican constitution for the free state, which will allow the people, on the, particularly on the moderate anti-treaty side, the Debeler side, to allow them to assuage their moral objections to the oath. Right, and to incorporation within the empire. In essence, he wants to try and create a layered form of external association through the use of a republican constitution. This he promises. This then becomes the basis of a political reconciliation in terms of the two treaty factions of Sinn Féin. Because while Sinn Féin TDs vote for the treaty, and decisively Collins' input here is important, Sinn Féin as a political party votes against it. Right? The Republican Party votes against the treaty. Now, this, this is temporarily reconciled, particularly to the agency of people like Joe McGiarty and Harry Boland, to the creation of a Sinn Féin pact. Now, the, this panel pact, as it is called, the Debeler Collins pact, suggests that the next that Sinn Féin will stand as a united party and there will be a panel of candidates under proportional representation and that representation then will reflect the weight of pro and anti-treaty supporters in the previous Dáil, the second Dáil, and that the subsequent Free State Government then would have a coalition cabinet of pro and anti-treaty Sinn Féin factions. Right? That's what the Electoral Pact is all about. Now, the, the entire period, having sort of assuaged the political side, Collins secretly and surreptitiously then engages in secret military preparations with the, the majority anti-treaty element in the IRA, and he, he launches a joint northern offensive. He launches a secret Northern offensive against Craig's government. This again neutralizes the question of partition and it makes it look as if Collins is serious about overturning partition. Okay. Now there are two abortive offenses of offenses, one in March and one in May 1922. Neither come to any great effect. In fact, by June 1922, the four courts garrison is still under the the the, 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 the delusion that the, the Baggers Bush or the, the Free State forces are helping them to coordinate a, a third offensive. And Rory O'Connor quite famously releases the documentation which proves this now. So these are the four planks of Collins's attempts to detach enough Republicans towards support the treaty in order to secure his position and acceptance of the document. These four planks very quickly unravel in May 1922, and they unravel under British pressure. Right? Collins and Griffith goes first, and then Collins goes to London. To with this Republican constitution, which Hugh Kennedy has drawn up for him, yeah, and the British go put that in the bin. You're not having that constitution. Here's the imperial constitution you're going to say. Collins then returns in the morning of the election without releasing the constitution and breaks the pact and tells vote for whoever you want, vote as your conscience dictates. This then election result based on a constitution, a Republican constitution no one has ever seen which is really an imperial constitution, forms the basis then of the mandate for the, the, uh, the free state government. Collins then, having broken the electoral pact, having not accepted an imperial constitution, then breaks off the joint northern offensive. He cuts his ties with the anti-treaty IRA and by degree 
over June 1922, he attacks the anti-treaty IRA with guns that he had borrowed from the British. Now, the interesting thing here is that the British, several days before, had ordered McCready to attack the four court garrison themselves. And McCready had said, you never never do this under any circumstances. If you if the British attack the four court garrison, first of all, the divisions within the anti-treaty IRA between uh, the four court garrison and, and the first southern division under Liam Lynch, they will be reconciled. There were tensions within anti-treaty republicanism about the way forward. But not only that, a considerable element of the Republicans who have essentially followed columns towards the treaty will then revert back to their Republicans. If the British do this, it will be catastrophic. So the British essentially inveigle and pressurise columns into attacking the Fort Goat Guards themselves. The British government records suggest that Collins must make the Republicans come to heel. That the, the Republican flag cannot fly in Ireland. These are direct quotations from British cabinet minutes. And this reverts back to what Liam Meadows had said about the treaty within the Dáil debates in January 1922, that this treaty is not the will of the people, it is the fear of the people. When Lloyd George had taken one piece of paper out of his pocket with uh, Griffith's memorandum, he very famously took two letters out of his pocket just before the Irish delegation signed and says, I have two letters in my hand. They're going by the mail book to James Craig and Belfast. One says peace has been declared. The other one promises immediate and terrible war. What an awful lot of the analysis of the civil war excludes is the context of the British threat of military intervention. And it's a threat of military intervention, which by degree convinces someone who claims to be furthering the cause of the United Ireland Republic, a Michael Collins, to accept the logic of his signature at half past two on the morning of the 6th of December. And by the 28th of June, he attacks Republicans with guns borrowed from the British to secure the 26 counties placed within the British Empire. Now, how do we know that this is part of the British government's logic? Because Winston Churchill, who's uh, the Minister or the Secretary of the Colonies and was on the, the British negotiating team, writes a letter to James Craig two weeks after the bombardment, and he says that Craig can be happy now that Collins has drawn the sword, his sword, against the enemies of the British Empire. And this was, this was the strategic logic, first of all, of partition, which would be used as a hub for reconquest of a republic, was declared. And then secondly, this was how, by degree, and by essentially attrition, an attritional threat, the British push the, the, that Republican element. And I think that Collins probably was genuine in, in his Republicanism, but deluded in the means to achieve it, yeah, towards a point of no return where they've essentially crossed the Rubicon and they become a proxy for empire. Now, that is a great tragedy then of, of the Irish Civil War. But so, And I, I'm going to end very quickly because I've run drastically over my time, is that was this threat legitimate? Was the threat legitimate? Uh, the evidence is that it wasn't. The evidence is actually that the British government was in no position to continue that level of repression in Ireland, not only in democratic or popular terms of popular support at home, but logistically and militarily. During the, the treaty negotiations, Churchill's very keen to send the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans to Palestine because they're having a bit of trouble there. And actually, Churchill in 1928, under Baldwin's government, is the Chancellor of Exchequer who decides to annually 
continue what is called the 10-year rule. And the 10-year rule is essentially a massive reduction in British military spending and the uh, abandonment of an expeditionary force and the cuts in military spending, of, which is only a quarter in 1920 from what it had been in, in 1918. A, Britain couldn't afford to face insurgencies across its empire. Michael Howard, the great conservative historian of the British Empire, calls the British Empire after the First World War a brontosaurus, where the central cerebral system couldn't uh, control the outlying limbs. Britain had fought this war for the freedom of small nations, but its own empire had expanded. Its own dominions had expanded in its wake, yet its capacity to control it had contracted. Britain was bankrupted by the war, partially helped by the fact that the Bolsheviks refused to pay the Tsar's debts. But this is the key strategic mistake that elements within the, in the Republican constituency make is that they rush towards, and this is a counterfactual history, but they rush towards a settlement. And in doing so, essentially eliminate the possibility of an settlement conscionable to their objectives, that is, an Irish Republic. And the basis for this, essentially, is the continual and contextual threat of British military intervention. The, the, the choice had been there in 1921, and the likelihood had been, particularly if you look at the violence in the early part of 1922 in Belfast, the likelihood is that there will be some form of civil war on the island of Ireland. The choice was made that that civil war would take place between southern nationalists on one side, uh, uh, principal anti-imperialist, uh, we would say about two-thirds of the, of the revolutionary movement, and then another element which sides, in essence, with the most reactionary and socially conservative elements within uh, Southern society. You get the reconfiguration then of politics. So the people who argue that you know there was no class dimension uh, to the civil war, as I said before, probably apply the same faulty criteria that Lenin criticised about the 1916 rise, and these people wouldn't know a social counter-revolution if it hit them in the face. What happens is that the material forces in Southern society uh, create a consensus, a pro-treaty consensus that is based on Catholic nationalist commercial class, large farmers, the Catholic Church, and that rump element, that rump right-wing element within the national liberation struggle, which essentially becomes the leadership of the free state after all those uh, Republicans who have defected are essentially removed, in and which is like a process of salami politics. So the the colonists, the, the the supporters of Michael Collins, the, the Republicans who thought they were pursuing the Republic through agreement with the treaty, are very quickly removed, particularly after the the, the army mutiny. And what becomes to consolidate itself as the establishment of the free state is, in essence, a new class-based alliance between the most right-wing element of the national liberation struggle and the rump who had never supported the national liberation movement at all.